The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter cape and mask cleaners. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and I'm joined, as always, by my daughter. Hello. And we are two generations of geek. This is episode 36, Superhero League Adventure Squad, and we'll be talking with comic book artist Christopher Jones about all the cool comic books he's worked on and his favorite superheroes. But first, a reminder to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and email us at thegeeks at generationsgeek.com. Plus, you can find handy links to all our episodes at generationsgeek.com. Now, on with the show. Christopher Jones, welcome to Generations Geek. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're happy to have you. We've been seeing you uh, in passing at various conventions for like three or four years now. And so it's... Everywhere, you can't escape me. (laughs) (laughs) So it's nice to have you uh, on. Yes, good to be here. I would like to start at the beginning. Well, when When... mom and daddy love each other very much. When did you become a geek? What got you started? I really don't remember any kind of formative event. You know, from earliest childhood, Mm -hmm. uh, I always, you know, loved this stuff. Loved superheroes, loved comic books, loved sci-fi, you know, TV shows and, and movies and all of that. You know, my mom kept a box of my old childhood drawings and things like that as parents often do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I went through them a few years ago and, and was, was amused to be reminded that it wasn't just random drawings, but like from a very early age, I was attempting to make comic books. I was having oh. multiple pages of you know, sheets of paper folded into books mm-hmm. and not that my visual to- storytelling skills were developed enough that it was clear to my adult eyes what was going on, but clearly there was supposed to be some sort of story progressively unfolding uh, <laughs> through the book. Uh, you know, with Batman being my my early original favorite superhero, and that that has never changed. I have to interject at that point. It is young you dressed as Superman in that fabulous photo on your website, right? It, it is. And <laughs> the thing that should be said about that is the only reason it is that photo there instead of me in a Batman costume is I have not found a photo of me in my Batman costume. Oh. There was also a Batman costume, both of which were made by my mom. You know, mom was not uh, an amazing seamstress, uh, although, I mean, certainly... Some some decent skills. She she grew up in a you know a depression era household, so certainly a you know a certain amount of cl- uh, clothes making and repair were were uh, part of the standard skill set. Yep. You know, but I, I guess the the better way to phrase it is uh, she hadn't uh, really developed a lot of skills that would go towards you know cosplay work, <laughs> except. <laughs> Then she got this kid that loved superheroes, so she she would indulge me for Halloween. You know, by the same token, with me having an interest in in drawing comic books from an early age, she very much wanted to support me, but didn't necessarily have 
any knowledge about how the business of the comic book industry worked, mm-hmm. which is why um, uh, what what she ended up doing was she and I went down to um, the local newspaper. So I was growing up in Owatonna, Minnesota. The local paper was the Owatonna People's Press, and uh, and we we went down there and and we're basically asking, you know, say, she said, "My son is interested in drawing comics. Is there anyone here we could talk to about?" comic strips and things like that because you know she or I did not understand at the time the difference between the comic book business and the mm-hmm. newspaper comic strip business which as it turns out are completely <laughs> separate and very little to do with each other uh, but you know this was when I was 10 years old and the receptionist at the paper happened to know that there was a, uh, a writer uh, on staff uh, by the name of Roy Everson who was a big comic book fan. So I think she was happy to know that there was someone that she could foist this mother and 10-year-old kid <laughs> off on because she didn't know what to tell us. And Roy Everson somehow convinced his editor to not only run a uh, little you know, human interest story on this local 10-year-old that really wanted to draw comics, but they actually took... They, they ran a kids syndicated kids section in the Sunday paper, it was, you know, one tabloid sheet folded mm-hmm. so you get four pages. You know, it was really simple news stories for kids and puzzles and games and things like that. And they actually uh, took one out of those four pages that they were paying for as a syndication package and replaced it with a superhero comic that I wrote and drew weekly. And it ran for 51 weeks Whoa! And so ten years old. At and, ten years old, I and you, was and you rent, had a year run, run. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't getting paid, so you know whether I can call that my first professional work is <laughs> dubious. It was all for the exposure. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, honestly, the the biggest lasting impact I think that experience had on me is it really made me focused early on on not only the, the discipline of getting stuff cranked out on the schedule, uh, but also visual storytelling. You know, mm-hmm. so many artists I see that want to do comics that are trying to break in and will show me samples of their stuff. Um, you know, it's not 100% true of everybody, but so many of them will have portfolios full of pinup shots. Yeah but very little sequential panel art that shows mm-hmm. how they can tell a story. And, uh, you know, there are very few artists that are going to get hired to do covers or pinups if you haven't first kind of, you know, paid your dues, uh, you know, showing that you can, you can tell stories. And so, you know, I, I ended up coming at it in this really sort of backwards way where I look at some of my earliest paid published work and I think I had my storytelling down early on, but I would characterize my earlier stuff as a little, a little dry and a little dull because uh, I was I was focusing on uh, everything being clear and telling the story well, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to you know being really flashy and and you know all the things that make the art more visually dynamic. Which so many artists starting out, they focus on that, but you can't tell what the heck is going on. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a great experience. And, 
I can honestly say with the comic book art, you know, I've got the job today I wanted when I was five years old. Yeah. And I, I fully recognize how rare and unusual and lucky <laughs> it is for me to be able to say that. So if you, if you hopped in the TARDIS and went back to your young self and told him you're going to be a professional comic book illustrator, it sounds like you probably would have said, yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, yeah, there would have been a certain amount of, you know, yeah, okay, and <laughs> details. Um, yeah, there, there, there wouldn't have been a shock at the general job description. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, that was, that was, I was pretty laser-focused on that path from early on. I mean, certainly there's advice I'd give to my younger self. I, I wish I would have recognized earlier on that setting your sights a little wider so I could have, you know, before before I found enough success drawing comics that I could support myself doing it full-time, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time doing that on the side, and my day job, you know, was doing administrative assistant stuff in an office or things that had nothing to do with art. And I think if I had set my sights wider, that, you know, I was willing to do more art-related things... Um, I might have been able to spend more of the, that time over those years doing things that both built up my skills, allowed me to network, gained me experience. Because uh, I think, I think you know, if you're interested in visual arts, you know, even if it's not drawing comics or exactly whatever the thing is you want to do, um, you know, doing related things benefits you in the long run. I mean, it yeah. definitely gives you other experiences and, and you know, you know, whatever, you know, as any kind of creative uh, person, artist, you know, whatever you want to call it, I think you pull from the full spectrum of your experiences and find ways to use that in what you do. You know, so I wish I'd understood that. Um, you know, the thing I always tell people starting out is, you know, if you're, you know, as you're considering, you know, art school or not, or any of the other things that might help you out in the long run, uh, you know, get some business training <laughs> because. <laughs> If you are a freelancer, you're effectively running a really small business and being able to understand not just the financial end, uh, you know, books and, and taxes and invoicing and all that, but, you know, you're, you're marketing yourself. You know, you, yep. you, your work is your product and you have to market that. You know, I, I wish I'd understood early on how much, um, you know, the, the biggest misconception I had was if you are some sort of a creative professional, you worked on whatever your creative skill was, you got better and better. And then when you reached some magical threshold of quality, uh, the, the gates would open and the jobs would flood to you. <laughs> and it so doesn't work that way at all. Uh, it's all about, you know, networking and creating opportunities and, and marketing yourself and, and making opportunities happen and, you know, all this stuff. You know, understanding that early on uh, would have helped. I wholeheartedly agree. And I think think it's even more true today now that things have been so transformed by the presence of social media and web-based platforms for for getting content out to an audience um, that didn't used to exist at all or certainly not in the form they exist today back when I was starting out. Uh, So what was your first professional sale? Oh, first professional sale. Um, well, after that comic strip I did when I was 10, <laughs> the next thing I had published 
it was still not paying work, but it was a little closer to professional. Um, I had met uh, someone who has become a very good friend of mine over the years, a writer named uh, Stephen Jones. Same, same last name, but no relation. And it's such an unusual name, too. Um, <laughs> what are the odds? He was uh, a few years older than I was, but was a comics writer looking to break in, which made for good opportunities for partnership. And uh, he, he is a big uh, mystery novel fan and mm-hmm. sold a, uh, a mystery magazine called Mystery Scene Magazine, I think it was. That sounds uh, familiar. I think um, I've seen it. On the idea of doing a little six-page comic feature um, to include in their magazine one month, and and so we did that, and uh, and that was fun to do. And then a few years after that, Steve had actually sold a comic series idea to a publisher that was around at the time called Eternity Comics, which I believe later became part of or was bought by Malibu, mm-hmm. which in turn ended up getting bought by Marvel. So my first work was for Marvel Comics. No, uh, it, was, it was for Eternity <laughs> Comics. And um, the, the whole reason that st- I got the job was Steve had sold him the book and there was originally a different artist assigned and that artist ended up having to drop out. And the publisher asked my friend Steve... You know, we have to find another artist. Is there anyone you know that you would like to work with that you could suggest? And he gave them my name, and I did a couple of sample pages, and they said, yeah, okay, that works for us. And I got the job, and that only ran for three issues. But, I mean, hey, I was I had a regular monthly comic book yep. for three months, which was a start. My progression from there was very... You know, incremental. I would do, I would do, you know, an issue or a mini series or something for various small publishers. And you know, I was talking about networking before. You know, all the all the jobs I got usually weren't me sending samples in cold to some company and having them hire me. It was, oh, I'd worked with this writer on a book for this company, and then that editor was doing something else and thought of me for that. And then the writer I worked with on that was working on something for somebody else. And that got me, you know, on that. So, you know, it's, it's, this, it's this thing where you can plan all the networking and promotion of yourself in the world, but it's really being prepared for those accidental connections and following up on, on the, the working relationships that you build up to try to, you know, springboard that into other things. A lot of the early stuff I did, you know, uh, it was during that boom of black and white titles in the the 80s where a lot of the independent publishers were enjoying the brief period of time where comic readers were actually willing to pay for a book that didn't have color in it. (laughs) A lot of it was not superhero material uh, or even science fiction. I was doing a lot of, like, you know, crime stuff, uh, horror stuff. I You know, I did some some like HP Lovecraft adaptations. I did the, I drew the comic book adaptation of the movie reanimator. Oh, <laughs> um, you know, which for, for people that know me from a lot of the, the animation or all ages, uh, stuff I've, I've done more recently. Uh, you know, a lot of my early work was about as far removed from that as you could, could imagine. And then, uh, so the way I finally, uh, got my foot in the door at DC comics 
you know, I'd been doing a lot of that for these smaller publishers and had wanted to draw superhero comics for DC or Marvel. So I was always sending sample packages to editors at those companies, mm-hmm. you know, through the mail, because that's the era this was. And, uh, wasn't getting anywhere. And then I saw that uh, Warner Brothers animation back when they were still doing their Batman and Superman cartoons in the 90s uh, were looking for additional freelance artists to do, I don't know, either storyboarding or character design or something. But they were taking out ads saying, hey, come work for us. And so I did some samples that were kind of in that Bruce Timm DC animated style and sent those in. And that didn't get me anywhere with Warner Brothers Animation, but I went ahead and included some of those samples in the next wave of submissions I sent to comic book editors. And that got seen by an editor at DC Comics that was looking for uh, an artist to do a fill-in story on a series they were doing called Young Heroes in Love, which... Uh, I've I've heard described as a cult book, which I think is a <laughs> fun way of describing it. Uh, it was actually a really neat idea for a series. Uh, you know, it was basically you know the garage band of superhero teams, mm-hmm. and and you know the the storyline was trying to focus more on the personal things the characters had going on in between adventures, fighting villains, um, than than the the fisticuffs and superheroes. But it was being drawn, you know, that series was being drawn in a style that was a little cartoonier. And so when they needed to fill in on that, I don't think the roster of artists that the, the editors knew who could do that kind of style was as deep. So it kind of created the opportunity for me, who had sent in samples that sort of resembled that look, uh, to get my foot in the door. And once my foot was in the door at DC, I mean, that led to doing a lot of uh, five and ten page stories for these anthology books that DC was doing a lot of at the time. They were doing, you know, kind of a revival of the 80-page giant format. They were doing things like Secret Files anthologies, and that was a lot of fun. And then the editor I had been working for at DC was overseeing the comic based on the the Justice League animated series, uh, Justice League Adventures, and they had a rotating pool of creators on that. They didn't have a set writer and artist every month. It was just, you know, they had this small body of writers and artists that would cycle through in various combinations. And I ended up getting to do a few of those. And that was a ton of fun. You know, and then eventually while I was doing that, I heard that there was going to be a new Batman animated series, which ended up being um, a show called The Batman which I always describe as the one that was the the Batman series that had to leap on the grenade of being the first one to follow the Bruce Timm, Alan Burnett, Paul Dini mm-hmm. uh, DC animated universe, which meant it got all of this backlash from fans of, you know, how dare you be different and why isn't Kevin Conroy voicing Batman and Mark Hamill voicing the Joker? And now that there's been even more different iterations of of animated batman i think fans are a little more accepting of the idea that you know different stuff will come around and it'll be fine um but uh when i first heard them announce that they were going to do that series i contacted my editor and i said well i know how this is going to work dc is going to do a comic book tie-in for that show 
do you know who's going to be editing that book? And I found out and said, I would love to draw that series. And I did a couple of samples for them and got the gig. And so that was my first regular monthly book for DC. And I did, oh, that series ran for 50 issues. And I think I drew all but about four of them. So that was a wow. substantial run of Batman stories, which made the five-year-old me uh, very, very happy. So you really got started at DC as far as the big publishers go. Yeah, I've done some work at Marvel, but uh, not nearly as much as I've done at DC, which has made some fans think that I don't care for Marvel as much somehow. Uh, actually, I love Marvel characters. Um, it's just, you know, it's that whole networking thing. You know, once yeah. you start doing work somewhere, that creates much greater opportunities to do more work there and for those people than somewhere that you haven't gotten your foot in the door. So and by the same token, I never started out um, deciding I was going to specialize in doing a lot of comics based on animation properties or all ages books. I enjoy working on that material, but the reason I've done so much of it is once you get known for doing that, well, guess what? That's a lot of the stuff that other pe that people offer you to do after that. So, so yeah, you know, I have done uh, uh, Justice League Adventures, Justice League Unlimited, The Batman Strikes, Young Justice, and over at Marvel, I did some stories for uh, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and I've even done a Gargoyles story. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, a lot of comics based on on uh, animation properties. Okay, so if you had to decide, what would be your favorite character to read, and then on the other side, your favorite character to draw? Well, I hate to spend just the whole time obsessively talking about Batman. <laughs> um, you know, I, normally I have a hard time picking favorites of anything. Um, I, my brain is just not wired that way. I'm a big Doctor Who fan, which means people always ask, then, well, who's my favorite Doctor? And I honestly don't have one because I like different ones for different reasons and I'm sometimes in more in the mood to watch a story with one than the other just because of what my mood is at the moment but uh, I can honestly say that Batman is far away far and away my favorite superhero because it's not even even close mm -hmm. uh, yeah I grew up loving Batman I still think Batman is not only the, one of the more resonant and interesting characters dramatically mm -hmm. But certainly, uh, visually, one of the more iconic and interesting characters to draw. Not only because you know his costume design is so amazing; it's you know possibly the best superhero costume ever designed, even in all of its different permutations. But the fact that there is an aesthetic to Batman that extends beyond just the character. You know, you're not just drawing Batman; it's it's all of his gear and the Batcave and Wayne Manor and Gotham City and all of that stuff. Um, so I never get tired of Batman. I loved the the look that that first animated series had the the back in the nineties. Oh yeah, that retro like forties look was just fabulous. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw anything uh, of that series visually. Uh, you know, certainly before it it aired. And, and it was just an article talking about it. And the, the one piece of promo art 
they had released was an image that I think they ended up using um, over one one of the versions of the end titles. It's just this uh, very stylized silhouette Batman head with the cape pulled up mm -hmm. in, in front of a circle design. Yep. And I remember seeing that and was actually really worried <laughs> because it was so simple and mm -hmm. so stylized, you know, that without being able to see what the the larger show looked like, I was worried that it was going to be not only as cartoony, but like even cartoonier than like the, the, the super friends sort of stuff that I grew oh. up on. <laughs> and then the show actually comes on the air and well, you know, yes, the designs were very, very simple and streamlined, but you know, the writing was amazing and it was obviously this much darker take on the material yep. and, and oh yeah just amazing narratively and visually i don't know if i've ever told you this but i would often time i was this uh stay-at-home dad mm -hmm. and i would time uh ella's nap to when uh, batman was on <coughs> and so you actually were often asleep in my lap yeah. as a baby while i was watching Batman. <laughs> Legit. And I'm sure that had no lasting effect on your whatsoever. <laughs> well, the great thing about Batman, of course, is since he doesn't have superpowers, he's a little bit more relatable as a character. Uh, that certainly, and, and I think... And the, oh, and, well, and then the... Uh, I love the, the noir trappings that just yep. are, you know, can fit so well with the character. Well, and I think I think it says something that the character is so iconic, both conceptually and visually, that you can reimagine him in such extremely different ways, and it's all still recognizably the same character. You know, the fact that I mean, I'm a big fan of the Adam West Batman series from the '60s, and was so happy when I got to draw a story for that comic. Um, but that's as wildly different tonally as you can imagine from like the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Yeah. And yet it's clearly recognizably the same character. And that's amazing. I think there's a lot of other characters you can quite pull off that range of, of interpretations and have it still work. Yeah. Um, and Batman does, but yeah, there's, I mean, there are certainly others that I'm, I'm, characters that I'm big fans of and am happy to either read or would love to work on professionally. Um, I mean, Batman and Superman um, are the big two for me at DC. I, I love Wonder Woman. I love the Green Lantern Corps. I would love to draw a run on the Legion of Superheroes. I mean, so there's a long list over there. Uh, and then, you know, like at Marvel, oh gosh, big Spider-Man fan, uh, Captain America, the X-Men. I mean, yeah, there, there's... There's an abundance of them at, at both companies. Um, so, it's yeah, it's a long list. Why don't we talk a little bit about Future Dude? How did you get hooked up with Future Dude and Parallel Man? And They approached me at a convention. Uh, you know, they're based uh, here in Minnesota, and they found me uh, at a convention in Minneapolis. And uh, were interested in having me draw this series of theirs called Parallel Man. Uh, which was simultaneously being developed as a comic book and 
uh, oh gosh, what all did they tell me? A collectible deck card game and a mobile device game and uh, they're trying to sell it as an animated TV series and a movie and all kinds of stuff. And um, because of that, they'd already done an extensive amount of world building for the concept. And some of the design work was already done because a lot of things like like vehicles and things, they had created 3D models of. Because mm-hmm. they were going to be using that for some of the various um, animation versions of of the property but that said i still was you know was coming in at a stage where they hadn't finalized the designs for a lot of the main characters and the, the concept was one that was um not only a a main fictional world but you traveled to parallel alternate timeline worlds and you had a, a fictional military force which meant designing huge numbers of uniforms and rank insignia and flags and you know all kinds of iconography you know just on that front it was a a huge project and uh we did a um seven issue comic book miniseries uh of that and uh you know i'm i'm really i'm really proud of, of the artwork i did on it so it was great. I really loved the look of it, and I thought, on the one hand, it obviously would be a huge job, but I also thought that it must have been a fun job because of those alternate worlds that you went to. You got to do a much wider range of stuff than you would in the average comic book. Yeah, it was well, it was fun and interesting and exciting to get to do yeah all those different worlds because some were technologically advanced and some were not. Some were, you know, very similar to our own contemporary reality. And, and, you know, we also went to places where the extinction event never wiped out the dinosaurs. So you have evolved dinosaurs running around, you know, so all kinds of crazy stuff. The thing that was a challenge about it was, you know, you were wanting to put in enough detail that it felt like a fully realized world. And when you go to a new location, you wanted this big cinematic reveal of an exciting compelling new environment but they were telling so much story that very often you'd get your first panel that was the big cinematic reveal of this new world and then there were five more panels on the page (laughs) and it, it it just meant that the artwork had to be incredibly detailed and dense just to get the amount of visual information into every panel that needed to be there for the demands of the story. Well, I thought it worked. I, I, I was quite uh, quite fond of that. I enjoyed the story and the artwork really came together. Well, thank you. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the other companies you've worked for, Image and Malibu? Some of these things have we've mentioned sort of in passing, but... <laughs> Well, it's so funny. You know, I've got technically I have Image on the list of publishers I've done work for. The extent to which I've worked for Image was that I contributed a story to an anthology that someone was putting together, and that anthology was published by Image. I had no direct dealings with Image at all. So technically, <laughs> yes, I've had a story published by Image. Have I worked for Image? <laughs> yeah. Um. 
Yeah, Mal- but Malibu is another one of those publishers back in my my days of um, you know pre DC Comics, um, you know of, mm-hmm. of the relatively smaller publishers uh, out there. Yeah, I mean those were good times. I you know I uh, the, I got to do a good variety of stuff, and you know it's so valuable to have the chance to to get that experience and get better. Um, at just the craft of creating the comics before you have the, uh, you know, my career hinges on this kind of uh, <laughs> pressure of, you know, getting handed a major franchise character by someone like uh, Marvel or DC. Um, I mean, not that I think working on those properties is the end all beat all of a, of a career. I, I would be happy to have the opportunity to work on more, uh, create our own things or, or independent things. It's just, you know, the reality is that unless you get very lucky or have built up a real big name for yourself, um, those projects do not get the kind of attention and scrutiny and are not seen by the number of eyes yeah. as these major superhero properties that publishers like DC and Marvel have. You know, I, I think the ideal place to be is being able to kind of alternate between doing something for those guys where yeah you may not have as much control over it and it's not your property but it kind of raises your profile a little bit and then you go off and do something that's a little more yep. personal and uh and yeah if you can go back and forth that's not a bad place to be yeah it's 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 like actors who do a big uh, blockbuster movie and then they do an independent film very very much like that i mean that's actually a really good analogy um Right now, uh, the series I'm working on is uh, a graphic novel, actually, not a series. Yeah, for all the comics I've done in my career, um, I've never done a really substantial uh, length graphic novel before. I've done one-offs, and I've done I've done you know individual issues and series and, and all kinds of things. But I'm currently drawing a hundred and eight page graphic novel called also known as which is an original property it's sci-fi it's written by tony lee who is uh, a best-selling novelist and a screenwriter but uh comics fans might know him from having he wrote a lot of the the doctor who comics that uh, idw put out when they had the license yeah it's it's kind of an interesting experience having been working this long on a story that because it's a graphic novel no one will see it until it's done <laughs> and it's an original property so people ask me what i'm working on and i'm like well i can tell you the title but it's not going to mean anything to you because it's new and you've never heard of it yeah so you know i i'm enjoying working on this a lot uh you know it's it's a great challenge artistically it's great working on something written by tony i, I like the story uh but that said uh there will be a certain satisfaction to when this is done, hopefully working on something else that will get a little bit more of that instant fan recognition yeah. of, you know, oh, that, yeah, I know what that is. That's cool. <laughs> you know? So as we know, uh, you're very active at local conventions because that's where we met you and also online. So do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the fandom? I love uh, fans and conventions and all of that. I I mean, I'm a big old fan myself, and I love just attending conventions for fun. Certainly, I would not get to as many conventions if I was not traveling to them professionally to <laughs> uh, to to be there as an artist and try to try to 
you know, connect with fans and, and sell some stuff and, and build my brand, as it were. I'm based here in Minnesota, and so I certainly do most of my conventions uh, around here, but I, I do about a dozen conventions a year or so. Um, I, the biggest convention I do every year is uh, New York Comic Con, which is a lot of fun, but kind of kind of overwhelming uh, in its scale. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I love doing stuff like that. You know, and and yeah, you mentioned you know online as well. It, it's this sort of cycle that has gotten designed. I, my my girlfriend, uh, wonderful lady named uh, Hal Bischel, um has worked with me to try to optimize my social media presence and and get the most bang from the buck of uh, the the number of conventions I do. So we've got this cycle where, um, you know, my brand is you know I, I used to just try to to very much promote my art and and we kind of changed things up to where you know given that I like talking to people and have kind of a wacky sense of humor and whatever all else. Uh, you know, we basically, you know, worked to make my personality part of my brand mm -hmm. so that, uh, you know, if people like me and like following me online, it hopefully makes them that much more interested in the, the artwork I do. So, you know, if you follow me anywhere on social media, I'm on, I'm on, Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr and, and God help me now, even Instagram. Um, <laughs> some of what I post there is promoting projects I'm working on, but a lot of it is just things I think are cool or things I think are funny. Uh, I always try to be very available um, to talk to fans. Um, I mean, that is something I genuinely enjoy. I'm also a big fan of cosplay and have made a big effort to engage with that community. Yep. And then we use all that social media traffic and that following to promote what I'm going to be at a convention and, you know, where, you know, that I'll be there, where I will be, things I'll have for sale, uh, free stuff I'm giving away, you know, all of that. And then we go to the convention and are very much trying to sign people up there to follow me on social media. So hopefully it's a positive feedback loop and just yeah. builds and builds and builds. <laughs> It's this weird thing of you know, if you're going to do comics professionally, and I think this is true of most creative endeavors, it becomes this weird mix of business and pleasure, commerce and fun. And, uh, you know, I enjoy going to conventions. I enjoy talking to fans on social media, but you're also trying to kind of craft your message and budget your time and energy <laughs> in ways that, okay, if I can't do everything I want to do and these four things I could do all seem fun, I'm going to prioritize the ones that are also good for me professionally. You know, yeah. it's, that, it's that kind of thinking. Well, and, and the biggest thing as far as, you know, engaging with fans is I, I certainly, um, it's not like I had no fans uh, in their <laughs> earlier days of my career. <laughs> But between, between the evolution of um, social media, making it easier and easier to stay connected to fans in between um, convention appearances, working on the Young Justice property was a game changer for me because that, that fan base is so engaged 
and and was so passionate about the show. And not only um, do I seem to kind of speak their language and get along with them fairly well online, uh, even though I, you know, as I'm forever clarifying to people, I didn't work on the show, (laughs) the comic book. Um, Of the people associated with Young Justice, I'm probably one of the more active online. So I ended up getting kind of a weirdly disproportionate amount of the attention from that fan base, um, which I have loved. I mean, I love, I love young justice fans. I'm, I was a big fan of that show above and beyond getting to work on the, the comic book incarnation of it. Um, and you know, that has continued beyond the, the end of our run of that comic and the original two seasons of the show and now, you know, there's all this talk about the possibility that the, the show might come back and whether that would mean that the comic would also come back and I would get to work on it again. I have no idea. But, you know, whether it whether it would lead to that, you know, something that would that would I could be involved with it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would just love to see the show come back for, for the fans because it was definitely yeah. a show that had more stories to tell and was of really remarkably high quality. So, so, you know, fingers crossed there. And uh, yeah, I've seen that you've been very active online, uh, helping to, to, to whip up the fans into a fervor about, uh, watch, watching on Netflix and stuff, doing the yeah. stuff that lets people know that there is, hopefully lets the studio know <laughs> that there is a demand for that show. Yeah. It, it's, it's tricky trying to walk the line between wanting to, uh, encourage people to um, do things that could help, but not wanting to sound like, well, you know, if you watch the show, then it's guaranteed that within yeah. this frame we're going to get these results. Because, um, yeah, there are no guarantees, and I don't know for sure uh, at all what's what's going to happen. But the reality is that it's not just rumor. Netflix is considering a third season of the show. They are talking about it, and they have been looking very carefully at the viewership numbers that the existing two seasons have been getting, especially since they just first added season two to their streaming service at the beginning of February. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason why uh, Greg Weissman and myself and others have been so beating the drums about keep binging on Netflix is, um, you know, now remember all of the, the very positive, loving things I said about fans. <laughs> the, the one slight downside of fandom as a whole is that sometimes it can be a little bit like herding cats because the fans get very excited about the idea of online petitions and getting <laughs> hashtags to trend on Twitter and things like that that are all wonderful and lovely and i have nothing against them but really don't do that much to pressure the kind of action that they're hoping for here because you know it's not i remember when when they first you know cartoon network first declined to order a third season of young justice there was all this talk about you know oh let's do a petition to bring back young justice um everybody involved knew full well that there were a lot of Young Justice fans 
and that they wanted more of the show and that the show was very highly regarded. Mm-hmm. The reason they didn't order a third season is they didn't think it was making them enough money. Yep. And a petition is not going to make them suddenly say, well, you know what? That was <laughs> enough money. Sure. Why not? You know, so the thing that is so unique and special about the current opportunity with Netflix is Netflix is a very different business model with their streaming original content than Cartoon Network was. And unlike normal television ratings where they measure ratings by sampling, you know, the whole Nielsen process, yep. um, with Netflix streaming, every time you watch something on Netflix, that registers in a database somewhere. They know how much a show is getting watched. So fans going out and watching it on Netflix shows up in the numbers that Netflix is looking at when deciding whether it's worth investing in an original, you know, a new season of the, of the show. And, and that's, you know, that's an amazing thing. You know, so, so often the only meaningful things people could do to, to support something like this involves, you know, spending money and, you know, I'm fully aware that most fans have a finite amount of disposable income. (laughs) But if you already have, you know, Netflix as a service, then this doesn't cost you anything other than making sure at every opportunity you turn on on Young Justice and let it run whether you're watching it or not. <laughs> um, I mean, I've got I've got both seasons on Blu-ray on my shelf, but you know, once I've bought those, Warner Brothers Animation or anybody else has no idea whether I'm playing those discs or not. But yeah. they can tell if I'm streaming it off of Netflix, so I do that. I want to change uh, tracks a little bit here. We've, sure. We've um, talked ab- about uh, your fabulous work. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the other stuff that's going on. We're in this just bizarre resurgence of uh, of genre material just being everywhere, should we talk a little bit about... I think you might want to say fantastic instead of bizarre. Did I say bizarre? You said bizarre. Well, bizarre I think bizarre in, Bizarre in a good bad. way. I mean bizarre in a good way. Uh, there are so many superheroes and other genre television shows on right now. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about those? Do you watch all of them? Do you watch any of them? Do you watch... I don't have time to watch <laughs> all of them. <laughs> yeah, there's so many. And, you know... I, I very much try to proceed with the understanding that there are shows out there that are not my cup of tea, mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad, and I don't fault, fault someone else for enjoying them. It just means that I don't care for them. So, yep. for example, as much as I'm a Batman fan, I don't follow Gotham, because every time I've tried to check it out, I think, you know what would make this Batman show a lot better? If Batman was in it. <laughs> Um, and yes, I realize Bruce Wayne is in it, but I'm like, yeah, but he's like 10. And by the time he puts on the bat suit, all of these villains are going to be looking into retirement planning. And I don't (laughs) understand how any of this makes any sense. But you know, there's people that I know love that show and more power to them. I hope they enjoy it. Yep. I've, I don't spend time watching it. I've been enjoying it, but I completely acknowledge that everything you just said is a very valid thing because i don't know if it does make sense but um 
some of the stuff they have been doing with their bad guys is just so far out there and crazy that I almost can hardly believe that they're that they got renewed. It's just <laughs> It, but, but I mean that in a good way. It's like, it's so crazy. It's like, um, it seems like the the studio or the network or whatever has just said, do whatever you want. We're just going to let you go. <laughs> and and so I've been enjoying that. So so what what other shows are you uh, really enjoying? Uh, I, I, I enjoy and try to follow all of the Greg Berlanti produced shows. So all the stuff on the CW. He knows what he's doing. And, and Supergirl. Uh, I'm a little behind on Supergirl just because it's a little harder for me to follow because that one's not on Hulu. Um, yeah, same. <laughs> but uh, but I, I enjoy it when I see it, and uh, and you know, and none of those shows are perfect. I my favorite of them is The Flash, and I can still nitpick The Flash. Uh, you know, I I there's a certain storytelling structure that you get in normal network television where you've got so many episodes to fill in a season and you end up with so many supporting characters and subplots mm -hmm. that it kind of feels like they're spinning plates sometimes. It's like, oh, we have to give this character 10 minutes in this episode even though we aren't really advancing their storyline significantly for three more episodes. <laughs> so we'll just sort of visit them and not really do anything very interesting. But then we'll come back over here to the main plot of the... You know, and that gets... A, but that's, the, that's inherent to the structure of most network television which is why I think some of the best superhero stuff on TV is the stuff that's a little more focused than that. Um, I enjoy Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but I vastly prefer Agent Carter. Um, <laughs> and I think part of that is, aside from, I love the time period and I love the character of Agent Carter, but also the fact that they have that shorter season really kind of focuses the, the storyline a lot, yeah. I think. Um, and then the stuff that Mar Marvel's doing on Netflix has all been amazing. The two seasons of Daredevil oh, and Jessica yeah. Jones. I can't wait for Luke Cage and Iron Fist and, and beyond. I think all that stuff is just stellar. Oh, yeah. I, I love that stuff. And that's one thing that I really am happy about that Netflix is taking that like sort of British approach of just doing 10 episodes or 12 episodes or whatever. And that's a season. And yeah, you just get such better storytelling you don't get uh, so often on an american show you get 22 episodes and it feels like uh they had 16 really good ones and then the rest is stretching with a lot of british television i i love and follow a lot of uh british shows and have for many years so many of those shows really benefit from a shorter episode count per season by having a single writer or maybe a two-person team of writers mm -hmm. write the whole show, which definitely gives a show more of a singular voice yep. than, than the, the kind of written-by-committee thing that is necessary for most shows that are going to produce 22 to 26 episodes in a season. But that said, you know, then you get things like we were just talking about, you know, the Netflix shows and Agent Carter where I think they've got larger groups of people writing those but by by virtue of the fact that they they i mean especially the netflix stuff where they, where they know it's going to get binge watched mm -hmm. they know they have this larger story to tell and you know 13 episodes in which to tell it you know there is not a lot of room for padding they're kind of laser focused on yeah. here's where we're going and i think i think that binge watching aspect makes it easier for them you know to to be like okay 
we're going to introduce this character here in episode two, and you won't see them again until episode seven, but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, which, which just, you know, again, um, keeps the story feeling a lot more focused and compelling. Yeah, so those are, those are good. I like those a lot. Well, we've gotten way behind on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Agent Carter, which is really too bad. But I've been able to keep up on so much else. Not everything, because like you said, there's too much. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, it's not and it's, a horrible and it's, problem to have. No, because you don't have to go back too far to where it would just be inconceivable that there would be enough great genre shows on at once that you wouldn't be able to keep up with them all. Well, I mean, aside from all the fantasy and sci-fi and other stuff that's out there, I mean, even just superhero shows. I mean, when I was growing up, if you had one or two superhero shows on at any given time, that was amazing. And then even those were so watered down (laughs) from what your expectations would be as a comics fan to what they could both afford to do as a weekly television series and what they thought a mainstream audience would accept. I mean, I remember, I remember when Marvel was first launching their Marvel cinematic universe. And I mean, I was blown away by how good Iron Man was uh, along with everybody else. And, you know, lost my mind over the Nick Fury, uh, (laughs) at the very end. But, uh, I remember when they were first talking about uh, Captain America and was thinking, like, okay, I would love to see a good Captain America movie. That's a tricky one to do because it's hard to not get into, you know, well, Captain America stands for something, but find, you know, try to get everyone to agree on what the icon of America should be about. You know, it's tricky stuff. (laughs) And, you know, like, okay, the villain's going to be the red skull not surprising but you know we've had a captain america movie with the red skull before and it was really bad um so you know i was keeping an eye on it and then when they first revealed that the red skull was going to be going after you know they ended up calling it the tesseract but you know we comics fans know it's the comet the the cosmic cube i was like are you kidding me because you know i grew up on you know, the Bill Bixby Incredible Hulk series mm-hmm. and Nicholas Hammond as Spider-Man and all these shows where you may have a character with the name and the powers <laughs> and kind of sort of the look of the comic book character. But the stories were always, you know, D- David Banner falls in with some truckers that are being oppressed <laughs> by the man. You know, <laughs> this is not a big sci-fi plot. This is the Rocket Files, but he turns green and throws things. Um, so, well, it was the fugitive, but you yeah. get the meaning. Um, you know, so the fact that we were like entering into an age where they weren't just bringing these comic book characters to the screen, but were willing to like dive deep into the mythology uh which now you know we're getting to the point where we're almost starting to take it for granted already that that's what (laughs) these movies are going to do but uh yeah it's we live in amazing times i think that we maybe have to circle back to one uh franchise that got mentioned earlier and we didn't discuss it much do we need to talk a little bit more about doctor who (laughs) 
we certainly could. When did you first start watching Doctor Who? Well, certainly it was when I was a kid. Um, I'd, mm -hmm. I'd heard of Doctor Who, and I, I think my first exposure to Doctor Who, other than just hearing of it, was actually Marvel Comics reprinted a couple of Marvel UK's Doctor Who comics in a series they had called Marvel Premiere, hmm. which included artwork by somebody I had never heard of at that point named Dave Gibbons. And, you know, this was back during the Tom Baker era of Doctor Who. And I liked those comics, but reading, you know, it doesn't matter how well written it is or how good the art is, you don't fully get the tone of the show yeah. or the charisma of someone like Tom Baker until you actually see the performance. Uh, so it wasn't until the local PBS station, Channel 2, started showing it. And uh, at this time, they were, they were showing individual 25-minute episodes weekday afternoons. My, if memory serves, it was like 5.30 in the afternoon. So I'd get home from school and watch Doctor Who. And I somehow completely missed all four episodes of Tom Baker's first story, uh, Robot. So the first Doctor Who I ever saw was episode one of Ark in Space, which is not a bad introduction to Doctor Who at all. It was a good story, and I immediately was kind of intrigued by how not Star Trek this was <laughs> as a science fiction show. You know, it was it was funny. The main character was eccentric. You know, the fact that instead of pulling out a tricorder, he steps out of this blue box and starts playing with a yo-yo and then comments on the fact that they're obviously in an artificial gravity environment. Like, who is this guy? This is amazing. Um, and yeah, I just I just followed it ever since. So yeah, I'm, I was a big, uh, big time uh, classic Doctor Who fan. Uh, certainly have followed it pretty religiously uh, since it went back into production in mm -hmm. 2005. Uh, eagerly awaiting season 10. I'm more than a little miffed that uh, we're having to wait so long for season 10. Yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds like that's more internal BBC politics than anything else, but doesn't make the wait any uh, any less frustrating. But uh, I yeah, a, I'm a Doctor Who fan. I grew up in northern Minnesota, out in the country, and the PBS affiliate up there never picked up Doctor Who. And so during my formative years, I heard of it, but I never saw it. So I actually didn't start watching Doctor Who until Ella started watching it on her own. So then I started watching it with her. And that was Matt Smith, because one of my teachers um, showed us uh, Matt Smith's first episode, mm -hmm. and that's how I started watching it. That's a good jumping on point. They did a, they did a nice clean break there where... We will reintroduce everything. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So many fans that come to Doctor Who now, I, I see so often people asking other fans, like, where should I start? Like, you do not have to watch it all in order. The show is really <laughs> good about if they bring something back from the past, they know that a big chunk of the audience has never heard of it before, so they will wholly reintroduce it for you. Um, you know, the, the, I never would have believed when and it first was coming back in 2005, that so many new fans who have discovered it with the modern episodes have been interested in going back and rewatching 
the older stuff. Uh, you know, the thing, the first thing everyone seems to talk about is how different the production values were. But to me, the big difference is the pacing. It used to be so much a, a slower yeah. show. I mean, it had a lot of charm and wit, and the stories were interesting, but they did not move at the clip <laughs> that no. modern stories do. So, you know, I don't, you know, I don't fault people at all for liking one doctor over another or one era of the show over another. I mean, so given that so much of the show is about constantly evolving and changing, you know, of course some of it is going to be better suited to your, your tastes yep. than, than other eras. So you know, you've, you've stayed pretty much is, is, is Matt Smith, your doctor? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I, I lean toward Matt at the moment, but I like I like Tennant and I liked Eccleston and I I liked uh, what's his face and newbie <laughs> Picard Capaldi. Capaldi yes Capaldi but uh, yeah I think Matt Smith is going to be like my doctor forever I, I thought that they got off to a little bit of a rough start with Capaldi that it made it a little bit more of a transition period than it had with some of the previous guys. Well, and but... also, like, Matt Smith was the youngest doctor ever, and so then to yeah. have the quick, and also, like, even, like, his literal, like, like the scene where he, like, changed into Capaldi, like, he sneezed. Bam. Yeah, he sneezed, <laughs> and then it was Peter Capaldi, and so even was that creepy, was just, like, actually. yeah, even that was just, like, shocking. I thought that Peter Capaldi's first season, I, I liked his doctor a lot, I thought some of the stories that first season were a little hit or miss. Yeah. This yeah. most recent season I thought was amazing. I loved season nine. Yeah. Seriously. They really seem to hit their stride on, on that one. And I'm, I'm looking forward to eventually sometime in the distant yeah. future seeing some more of Capaldi. Well, and when they announced when they announced who the new Doctor was going to be, it was like this whole big thing. And I remember because we were watching a live stream of it. And then they were like, it's... Peter Capaldi and everyone not from England was like, <laughs> who? who is that? <laughs> but I mean, traditionally, they cast people who are not big international celebrities as the Doctor. I mean, you know, the, the, I mean, going back to the classic series, it's like you know, Peter Davison was known for other TV shows like All Creatures Great and Small when he got cast in Doctor Who. But I mean, he was not a huge international celebrity. These people tend to become big international celebrities now because of Doctor Who. <laughs> yep. So, I mean, that's what always gets me is whenever you see all this dream casting of people that, you know, someone people would like to see be the next Doctor, inevitably someone throws in someone, you know, that is some big movie star or something. I'm like, yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I would love to see, I would love to see someone that isn't a white dude be the doctor sometime mm -hmm. soon mm -hmm. but i am totally i'm totally on board with the idea of you know i don't i wouldn't want them to decide on the demographic of the next doctor and then find the best available actor to fit that i would rather yeah. see audition everybody and whoever yeah. walks in and owns it is the next doctor you know that said uh, i think they've made it about as clear as they can that Time Lords can change ethnicity and gender in a regeneration. So they've they've laid all the groundwork I think it's possible to lay for that to be something that happens very soon. Yeah, I, I would kind of be surprised if the next doctor isn't a woman. 
I'd be a little surprised. I'd be I a mean, little disappointed. I mean, I, I remember rooting for them having a woman instead of Capaldi. Oh, yeah. Um, there was a lot of, there were a lot of people feeling that way at the time. And, um, but we'll see. But yeah, it, it would be. But how awesome is Missy? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I just miss Amy. Amy is uh, my favorite companion of, of the new stuff because I just, I haven't gone back and watched enough of the uh, old stuff to to really have a, a feel for that. I, I like to think that when I start watching the old stuff that Tom Baker will be my favorite doctor <laughs> because for various reasons... He's just such a nut job. I just want to. <laughs> well, obviously, it's it's pretty common in Doctor Who fandom for whoever you are first exposed to stands a very good chance of forever being your favorite because that's you know that's what imprints on you is what the character is. Yeah. And then then you get all these other alternate versions who are also fun, but not what introduced you. Um, and that's, I mean, that's kind of where Tom Baker is for me, but I mean, I love all the new doctors. I love all the classic doctors. The doctor I think might edge everyone out as my favorite. If there were more stories of his intact, cause I love Patrick Troughton to bits. I think he's so good, but like they've got seven or eight of his stories complete and all the rest mm-hmm. are like missing an episode or two or more, which is really frustrating. Ironically, if I had the TARDIS, one of the first things I would want to do is go back and rescue Mrs. Doctor. <laughs> Kid. Father. <laughs> Did you want to um, remind Chris about your... Uh... Oh, I, I yelled at you before the Iron Giant premiere. Or not premiere, showing. You yelled at me? <laughs> you, uh, you came in and I recognized you and then you sat down a row or two ahead of us and you heard my friend say something and answered him and then I was like, Christopher Jones! <laughs> I do remember that. I do remember that. <laughs> and then I came home and I was like, Dad, Christopher Jones is the Iron Giant thing. I so wish I had gone to that. <laughs> I, I described this thing to my friends... Uh, that I describe as niche celebrity, uh, <laughs> where 99% of the people on the planet, all right, let's be fair, 99.999%, neither know or care who I am. <laughs> In very narrow circles, there are people that are like, oh, wow, that's Christian. <laughs> <laughs> like everyone who goes to Convergence is <laughs> just like, Christian. Not everyone, I mean, as much as, Yes, a lot of the people there know me. I also walk around in that hotel and I'm very well aware that there's a lot of people going to that convention that neither know or care who I am. <laughs> and that's okay. They are not there to inflate my ego. They are there to enjoy the convention. When Ella was uh, much younger and I would take her to uh, this big convention, Shore Leave, that I've been a writer guest at for a number of years because of the uh, Star Trek that I've done, and uh, and so it's like it's a very much a Star Trek oriented convention, and so that would give this very, very skewed perception to an impressionable young kid <laughs> about her dad is famous, uh-huh. you know. And it's like exactly like you said. No, it's like 
in a subset of a subset of a subset of a subset of a subset. <laughs> on this particular weekend. On this particular in this weekend. In this particular hotel. Yeah. There in is... this particular <laughs> suburb of Baltimore. Yeah. There people is... know who I am. There, yeah. And well, it's so, it's so funny. I mean, you, you asked me about Doctor Who. You know, I'm a big Doctor Who fan. I've done a number of Doctor Who prints. Mm-hmm. But nowhere in my history of comic book work uh, or anything else have I worked on a Doctor Who property. And yet, um, I I started attending a Doctor Who convention in Los Angeles called Gallifrey One. Mm-hmm. And the people running it got to know me and they knew I was a comic artist and did a lot of comics conventions. And they saw my art and, and everything and, and they started inviting me as a guest to that convention. And that's worked out very well because, because aside from the fact that, yes, I do have Doctor Who prints available, also a lot of Do- Doctor Who fans attending that convention like other stuff too. <laughs> so, you know, it all, it all kind of works out. But then, you know, in part because I think of having the history there, I also then ended up being a guest at the local Doctor Who convention here in Minneapolis that started up console room. And now last year I was a guest at uh, Chicago TARDIS. So I've now been a guest at three Doctor Who conventions <laughs> without ever having worked on anything. <laughs> Score. Is there anything that uh, you wanted to mention or that any current projects other than the graphic novel that you want to give a shout out to or? Uh, well, I, I, like I said, I mentioned the graphic novel also known as, um, I do know what I am working on after that, but it hasn't been announced yet. Got, so okay. Yeah. Talk about it. I will, I will just direct people to uh, my social media because whenever I have stuff to announce, I do not keep it a secret. I'm not shy. Uh, <laughs> it appears all over the place. Uh, if people go to my, my blog, which is ChristopherJonesArt.com, uh, that has links to all my other social media. So it's one-stop shopping for all things Chris. Uh, so there's that. And you, know, you mentioned Convergence. Um, so I helped start that convention many years ago, and for the first 14 years of its existence, um, I was one of the directors of it and helped put publications together and all that. And while I still volunteer for it, I have not been as involved in recent years as I used to be, just because I got to the point where I didn't have the time for it anymore. Well, they finally answered the question of, how long after Chris is no longer a director is it appropriate to invite Chris to be a guest at the convention? <laughs> so I will be a guest at Convergence this year, which is going to be really weird. Um, hopefully cool and fun. <laughs> Honestly, really kind of weird for me. So that, that should be entertaining. But, uh, you know, hey, for Young Justice fans, um, Greg Weissman, who I worked with on the comic and who is one of the co-producers of the show, will be back as a guest this year. And Kari Payton, who was the voice of Aqualad on Young Justice and is also the voice of Cyborg on Teen Titans, will be there as a guest. And many others. You can check out their website and read about it. But I've got that to look forward to in July, and that should be a lot of fun. And we will see you there. Awesome. Oh, my God. I uh, Every time I'm talking to somebody and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I should invite them to Convergence, they're like, oh, well, what is it? I'm like, it's a... General sci-fi fantasy and yeah. other things convention, and the themes are different every year. And this year, the theme is a Midsummer Night's Dream, and they're like, "What does that mean?" And I'm like, "I don't know, but it <laughs> will be fun. We'll get there. It'll be awesome. I yeah. promise it'll be good." Well, and, People are and, like, uh. 
I have such severe withdrawal when I like come home from Convergence on Sunday. It's always hard to transition <laughs> back to the real world. It is. Thank you so much for coming on. It was great to do this finally. My pleasure. Happy to do it. And we'll be keeping an eye out for you at Convergence and uh, various comic book things that go on here. <laughs> yeah, I'll get all the teenagers to make you feel like you're famous. Just recruit <laughs> Thank everyone. You. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be at, I'll be at uh, MSP uh, SpringCon, and mm -hmm. uh, I'll be at uh, Console Room and Convergence. So yeah, if you're... If you are local to the Minneapolis area, you can't get away from me. <laughs> <laughs> as much as you might try. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's, a, there's no escaping. That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next time for episode 37, Bats and Soups, when we'll look at Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, to ponder the birth of the DC Extended Universe and how it stacks up against the start of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Remember that Generations Geek is part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from Clark Kent's apartment while he's at work. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come, come back, back next, next time. time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny. <laughs>